Bill was asking what encourages us. Several things came to mind to me, but one is being able to walk through this life with fellowship of saints like you all. That's an encouragement. Another is the presence of God when we gather. Uh, Always an encouragement. The other one that comes to mind is Scripture. Scripture encourages me more than anything. Um, As it should. should. Um, We're going to plow some familiar field and ground this morning. Um, You know, there are lots of... um, I'm a frustrated farmer at heart. Uh, I'm like that character in the movie, um, The Natural, Wilford Brimley, the coach, who kept saying, my mom always told me I should have been a farmer. (laughs) I love anything agricultural. Um, And it's an exciting time to be a farmer these days because of lots of new technological advances, and they know so much more scientifically about how to grow things. But it all comes back down to, you know, plowing a field or breaking ground, um, turning the soil and allowing it to breathe. And uh, hopefully we can do that this morning and you'll find something uh, that is encouraging and refreshing and challenging in the word. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for the promise of your presence this morning. I pray that you would use my voice, empower these words as only you can. Allow them to accomplish that for which you send them forth. To your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. I want to thank Preston for his message of a couple of weeks ago about regarding the deadly sin of sloth. It is, as he said, the one sin of the deadly seven that is of omission rather than commission. It is the sin that lays a snare and prepares the way for stepping out again into the other sins that are commission-based, that are a commission of will that defies the Father, grieves the Holy Spirit, and crucifies again the Son of God. One of the definitions of sloth by Merriam-Webster is spiritual apathy and inactivity. How can we become apathetic about so great a gospel of good news and life-changing grace? How can we allow ourselves to become inactive for the kingdom and consumed with busyness that only produces the fruit of folly? How do we allow this sinister malaise of sloth to creep into our living faith and our worshiping hearts? And why do we allow it to coerce us as living sacrifices to crawl off the altar? Sloth is like a thief who enters under the cover of darkness and takes just a little so as not to be discovered, then returns the next night for something else. And before we know it, we've we've been robbed of the very thing which we cherish the most our place of abiding in Christ, in love, truth, and peace. Preston reminded me in his message of one of the key verses that I used in my last message on citizenship, which came from the end of Philippians 3. It says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ 
who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject subject all things to himself. Preston made the point that the wise man begins with the end in mind. If we know where we're going, it helps us better focus on staying on the path to get there. Heaven is our home, Christ is our king, and sharing those truths with the people we encounter in this life is our mission until he comes to transform us into the conformity of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. What a powerful life promise of what will be for us. And as Bill said, the first step is desire. So how do we shake off the slumber of sloth and daily reaffirm our desired commitment to Christ our King. Preston highlighted the answer in the middle portion of Philippians 3, where Paul declares from his prison cell, not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. How do we achieve victory over sloth and slumber? We press on. Preston said we push the go button of our heart, and if that doesn't kick in, we press the just do it button. I like that. God has given us a standard, and that standard is Christ himself. It is in him that we are perfected. And if there's anything in us that is in conflict with his perfection, his standard, God will reveal that to us through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, obviously, I know I'm not already perfect, but perfection in Christ is the goal that I pursue. So I purpose to press on to lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. In order to press on, I must forget what lies behind and reach forward, strain, stretch, work diligently to touch it, to grasp it, to wrap my hand around it, to cling to it and to hold fast to it. It is the prize we should desire above all else, to be called up by God into the presence of Christ our King, our Lord and Master. The end of Philippians 3 declares our possession, our citizenship, and the hope of our transformation to be like him, for we shall see him as he is. The middle of Philippians 3 declares our pursuit to press on, to lay hold of that for which we were laid hold of by Christ. And since we've essentially backed into Philippians, doing the end and then the middle, I thought we'd spend some time today at the beginning. I believe the earlier portion of Philippians 3 can be summarized under the heading of the price. 
So it is the price, then the pursuit, and then the possession, I believe, that encapsulate the instruction of Paul in this letter to the church at Philippi. So please turn me with, with me in your Bibles to read together chapter 3 of Philippians 1 through 11. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more, says Paul, circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Those are powerful credentials in the Jewish world of Paul's day. He continues, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. One of the cures for sloth as a believer in and follower of Christ is loss or suffering. Suffering or loss is where faith is tested and tried. It's where the rubber hits the road, as the old saying goes. Paul, in this passage, is reminding the church at Philippi that he was a Hebrew's Hebrew. In reference to his life before Christ, Paul described himself this way, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. This was his life. This was Paul's life, his pursuit. His goal in life was to accomplish these things and to gain this reputation. He was among the upper echelon of law keepers, the Pharisees, and he led the way in persecuting followers of the way. Then he met Jesus. His world was turned upside down, or more accurately, right side up, and he did a 180. Whatever he used to count as gain in light of knowing Christ, he now counted as loss. They were rubbish, quite literally dung to him. Remember the account of his conversation with the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus in Acts 9, 3 through 6. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. Then skipping down to verses 10 through 17. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias? And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man named Tarsus, from Tarsus, named Saul. For he is praying and he has seen a vision, a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. From the very beginning of Paul's relationship with Jesus, it had been understood that he would suffer for Christ's name. In 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 30, Paul gives an account of how much he had suffered in obedience to Christ. He begins, are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane, I more so. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there's the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. If you think you're having a hard time, (laughs) recount what Paul endured for the Lord's name. Quite a contrast from the man who once was proud of his Jewish credentials. They're no longer a source of boasting to him. The only boasting Paul is interested in doing at this point in his life, in prison, writing to the church at Philippi, is boasting in Jesus. We, of course, have not encountered suffering anywhere near a magnitude of that. I dare say that none of us have ventured to pour out our lives in service in the manner that Paul did. The Lord has not required it of us yet. Would we we be willing to if he did? I've never been beaten because of my testimony of my faith. I've never been imprisoned for believing in Jesus. As someone once proposed, If I were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict me? Sobering thought. To be a Christian to Paul was to write the word loss in big letters. 
over everything the world has to offer and to write the word gain over the things that are only found in Christ. But I must make a distinction between the suffering and loss that's a normal part of life in a fallen world and the suffering or loss that's a result of following Jesus. To be sure, even in the suffering of life, Christ is there with us and the Holy Spirit guides and provides comfort as we walk through these difficulties. But there's another suffering and loss that comes as a direct result of following hard after God. I believe it can be established in Scripture that the more earnest we become in walking in the light of light in Christ, the more intentional we become in faithfully proclaiming to the world we connect with every day His Lordship in our lives, the more passionately we pursue serving Him to reach the unreached, the more we welcome the loss of all things, the more we will suffer. Wait, what? That's your selling point, you might ask? (laughs) Pursue Christ and lose all things and suffer? Understand me here. We do not seek suffering. That would be crazy. Rather, we seek service for Christ. But in that service, we can anticipate suffering. Christ-like service, in its purest sense, is the emptying of oneself, the laying down of one's life in deference to the needs and benefits, the life of another. Hear these words of Jesus. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Matthew ten thirty eight. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Matthew sixteen twenty four through 25. And again, he summoned the crowd and his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Mark eight thirty four through 36. One more time. And he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake... He is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Luke nine twenty three through 26. This seemed to be an important point that Jesus was getting across to the disciples. If you want to save your life, lose it. For me. First John three sixteen through seventeen says, We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need closes his heart 
and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. It is the laying down of our will and the embrace of the cross that leads to life. Y'all have heard me say this before. I have a will that God will not change. I have a heart that I cannot change. But if I will change my will, God will change my heart. So there is the loss that leads to life in the laying down of our wills to follow Christ. But there's also the suffering of loss that comes as a result of the following. We must be wise enough to anticipate this, but faithful enough to accept it. Because it is the suffering, it is in suffering loss that we find our hope in God. And we come to know Christ better because we share in his suffering. John Piper once said, God helps us prepare for suffering by teaching us and showing us that through suffering, we are meant to go deeper in our relationship with Christ. You get to know him better when you share his pain. The people who write most deeply and sweetly about the preciousness of Jesus are people who have suffered with him deeply. In the last portion of the book of Job, after all the suffering he had encountered, he says in chapter 42, verses 5 through 6, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. The difference of knowing God in prosperity and knowing God in poverty and adversity was the difference between hearing and seeing. Suffering makes our relationship with Christ less distant, more personal, more intimate. I always like to seek the thoughts of faithful saints who have gone before to see the wisdom of their walks with God. And here are some words that resonated with me on the subject of suffering and loss and cost. Oswald Chambers said, To choose to suffer means that there's something wrong. To choose God's will, even if it means suffering, is a very different thing. No healthy saint ever chooses suffering. He chooses God, God's will, as Jesus did, whether it means suffering or not. T.A. McMahon said, For the believer in Jesus, every trial of suffering is an opportunity to grow in the faith, to grow in our relationship with the Lord, and to see him work in our lives in a uniquely personal way that demonstrates his compassion, his comfort, his tender mercies, his loving kindnesses, his grace, and his endless love. Only God knows what each of us needs to experience and learn in order to be conformed to the image of his son. Hudson Taylor said, At the timberline where the storms strike with the most fury, the sturdiest trees are found. James H. Aughey said, God brings men into deep waters not to drain them, but to cleanse them. And the martyred St. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, We must learn to regard people less in light of what they do or omit to do, and more in light of what they suffer. The wife of martyred missionary Elizabeth 
Elliot, or Jim Elliot, Elizabeth Elliot said, We want to avoid suffering, death, sin, and ashes, but we live in a world crushed and broken and torn, a world God himself visited to redeem. We receive his poured out life, and being allowed the high privilege of suffering with him, may then pour ourselves out for others. John Piper, this is God's universal purpose for all Christian suffering, more contentment in God and less satisfaction in the world. G.K. Chesterton, Jesus promised the disciples three things, that they would be completely fearless, absurdly happy, and constantly in trouble. Charles Spurgeon, Our sorrows are all, like ourselves, mortal. There are no immortal sorrows for immortal immortal souls. They come, but blessed be God, they also go. Like birds of the air, they fly over our heads, but they cannot make their abode in our souls. We suffer today, but we shall rejoice tomorrow. Another Oswald Chambers quote. We all know people who have been made much meaner and more irritable and more intolerable to live with by suffering. It is not right to say that all suffering perfects. It only perfects one type of person, the one who accepts the call of God in Christ Jesus. Joni Erickson Tata said, The greatest good suffering can do for me is to increase my capacity for God. Clovis G. Chappelle said, You may suffer and yet be unchristlike, but no man can be Christlike and fail to suffer. If you ever, by the grace of God, become a partaker of the divine nature, you must also inevitably become a partaker of his sufferings. And finally, C.S. Lewis. Try to exclude the possibility of suffering which the order of nature and the existence of free wills involve. And you will find that you've excluded life itself. So how do we press on to see the light of Christ shine brightly in and through us as we resist sloth and spiritual slumber? By counting whatever used to be gained to us as loss in light of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. As Philippians 3, 9 through 11 says, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And here we pick up with the passage that Preston read and through the ending of my message on kingdom citizenship. Philippians 3, verse 12, Not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard which we have attained. Brother, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. 
For many walk of whom I have told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. 1 John 3, 2-3 says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Until that day of transport to our eternal dwelling place, let us press on towards perfection, counting the world's gains as losses, emptying ourselves in service to others, sharing in the fellowship of his sufferings that we might attain to the resurrection from the dead. When difficult times come, and they will come, may we be found faithful in our witness to the Lord Jesus. And in the meantime, may we pursue a service to Christ that makes us completely fearless, absurdly happy, and constantly in trouble. Would that we could say with confidence, as Paul did in Philippians 1.21, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Let's pray. Lord, what a high calling you have placed on us to represent you to a dying world that is so needy. Oftentimes we're busy trying to figure out how to get by instead of pressing in to how to gain the things of God that bring you glory. Lord, there's a lot of creativity in this room. There's a lot of passion and commitment and faithful people. I pray that you would grant us new vision for how we can serve others in a way that causes trouble. May we stir things up, Lord, for the kingdom and not walk in apathy. Lord, we want to be faithful. We want to be found faithful. We don't want to cause trouble for trouble's sake, but Lord, we want to make a difference. We want you to be glorified with our lives, to be seen, that your light might draw others to you. I thank you for the example of service and suffering that Paul endured how blessed we are today, how comforted because of the words that he could speak, because of the experiences that he had, and because of the grace that was sufficient for him. Lord, continue the work you've begun in us. We know that you are faithful. You are able. That you will perfect it until the day you call us home. 
Today, we confess our desire to be able to say with confidence, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Help us this week, Lord, to see those things that need to be counted as loss and put them in their proper place. Let us elevate the things that need to be gained so that we will not be found in spiritual apathy and malaise. Help us to fight off sloth, to live in a manner that is worthy of your calling of us. I thank you for your goodness and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.